So this will be a short couple of spoiler questions that we will yeah. do loads of warnings about because I don't want to ruin it for everybody at all, for anybody at all. But Terry, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Did you know when you first sat down to write The Year of the Locust how it was going to end with time travel time traveling submarines the world falling to an alien spore and human genealogy changing yes yeah yeah <laughs> I, I i i knew because he had to go on incredible adventure and in these sort of books everybody knows that he's gonna live everybody i mean yeah you could kill him if you want but God, that's going to be depressing. And that, so, you know, it's be like losing a family member. So I knew, but, uh, and I knew because I wanted to push it out there. It's not really a spy thriller. It's just an adventure story. And, you know, if, I don't know, if Jules Verne can take you down to 20,000 leagues under the sea, I figured I could do it. If Terminator could do it, I thought I'm going to try for it. What I have to do is try to make it believable and and push you out there and so i love the moment where it's doubted that he ever went on this journey it was purely of the imagination and they think well you were in a flotation tank virtually you were deprived of oxygen it was dark you were obviously cracking up mentally uh and that and then he proves to them that he had seen it did he go through it i don't know i don't know it's whatever you want to believe it's and, a beautiful moment, though, because also that really taps into a very personal fear of mine, which is not being believed about something that I've witnessed or seen or said. And I think that's a quite a common thing with yes. people, too. Yes. And of course, he does prove it to them by having some information that you could have only got in one way. And that enables his his romantic partner, Rebecca, to say, go, go and do it. Go and fulfil your destiny. But, you know, along the way, he's heard gunfire from the future. He's convinced himself that she's going to die in the ruins of the big city. Yada, 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 yada. So so I hopefully set it up. But, yeah, you've got to make it adventurous. At least you've got to try to. And can you can you tell me a little bit about the science of the spores? Because what you were just saying there about it being believable, I do really like sci-fi, but the older I get... (laughs) the more I find it terrifying because I believe it more. I, I see no, so no. much of science fiction as prophecy often with oh, what yeah. could happen. So what is the science in those spores? And should I be terrified the whole time? Yeah, we should all be terrified. I mean, as it says in the book, it's the last great frontier. Mm. Musk is not trying to colonise Mars because he just wants to colonise Mars. The, Jim Cameron is not investing in all the off-Earth mining it's the new frontier. It's going to be the wealthiest gold rush in history because we've depleted the planet. And that. And here is a way to restock everything. And people are going to make huge fortunes just like Blondike or Ballarat in Australia or whatever. So, it, yes, we're going off Earth mine. Two weeks after I finished the book, NASA announced that it just brought back all samples from an asteroid. Now, what's on those ore samples, nobody knows. The US lost a stealth fighter that crashed for three days because the stealth technology on it was so good. The hottest thing in military science at the moment is cloaking technology, really big-time stealth. 
buy every asset on the battlefield. That's all true. And then the New York Times had a wonderful story on page one about the moonshot and how it came back. Uh, and they're supposed to have all the protocols in place to protect contamination of the planet. Within three days, 23 people have been exposed to everything that they brought back from the moon without any protocols. And there's a microbiologist mentioned in that story, which is fantastic. And he said, had they made a mistake or had there been a bacteria in that material, we were toast. We have no defences. He didn't say it, but what he meant was, we're the Indians with the smallpox blankets. Mm -hmm. No, we're going out there. There's nothing left. I mean, mankind, Carl Sagan says this, we're always looking at the frontier. One of the great things in mankind, humankind, and all that same kind anymore. Uh, and that, so humankind's always looking at the next frontier. Isn't the only frontiers left on Earth are... Uh, Deep sea, Jim Cameron's been there, and you know, those people died on looking up the Titanic, but deep, deep sea, and they're talking about mining really deep, not, not none of this rubbish about oil rigs and stone up mining really deep, and space are the two last great frontiers. Are we going there? Sure. Magellan's circumnavigated the earth, you know. Columbus thought he'd arrived in India. Uh, you, you know, we're always, that's human nature. You see, is, is it my, my little bit of cod psychology on that? Is it generally people searching for something that they haven't found in their own life? It's a bit like your story with Jim Carrey and going to that house in New York and then Miami. It's like, what were you searching for that you you weren't fully satisfied with? that you have to keep pushing and, and looking for the next frontier, just be content. And it's okay. You can still have adventures, but you don't need to destroy the moon and the world through it. Well, yeah. But, you know, artists, writers, creative people, they're looking for something inside them. Really, Musk and a lot of other people. It's greed. Yeah. Gordon Gecko got it right in Wall Street. It's mm -hmm. greed. Yeah. And, you know, look, do we need artificial intelligence? I I, I honestly don't think so. I, I think we need more human intelligence. But, you know, nobody wants to go and look at that. You know, in Oklahoma, that there's three days schooling a week cause in some areas because they can't afford to keep the schools open. Now, those kids don't have a chance right from the get-go. They've got no chance. Do we solve that problem? No. We're gonna we're gonna have artificial intelligence. Why? There's a curiosity about how far can you go, of course. But also there's this thing, it's gonna be a big payday. It's gonna be a really big payday. And that's well, off earth mining. It, I, I have no doubt whatsoever it's coming. Is cloaking technology coming? Oh, you bet. Everybody's working on nanotechnology, trying to bend light. Uh, and that. It, it's going to be great. It's going to be great because you can now have a tank on the battlefield that nobody can see. The first thing you'll know is when the shell blows you, your tank apart. But you know what it's going to be? Every stalker in the world is going to go for cloaking technology and there's not going to be a woman safe anywhere because everything will be 
<laughs> diverted and perverted, you know. I mean, the the internet is a wonderful, wonderful thing. <laughs> What's the biggest business on the internet? Porn straight mm-hmm. into your home, you know, <laughs> and that's so. Yeah. So I don't, I don't have a lot of confidence that these things, when they happen, are going to be well managed, and that's been the history uh, of the. I mean, driverless cars. Great technology, fantastic. Wouldn't it be nice to sit there and sleep? People getting killed left, right, and centre because the car didn't recognise that it was a human being, you know? Yeah. So just to end our our mini spoiler section uh, on a slightly happier note, because I I share those depressing thoughts with you Mm -hmm. about the uh, mismanagement of the future. Um, I really liked how you had your hero in this story be able to meet his grown-up children through time travel. Was that something, did that come out of kind of love for your own kids who are a bit older now and being able to, they'd never see you when you were a, a man in your 30s or 40s. They, no. That would never happen. No, it, it, well, it was the first idea I ever had for the book. That was the first idea I ever had that wouldn't it be neat if a mid-30s father could meet these children when they're in their mid to late mid-20s and they fight side by side because it's inherently dramatic because they've got to discover what their relationship is. And so you can spread that out over any number of pages whilst realisation dawns. Now you've got yourself something really great because they're going to fight to the end to save each other. And so that means you can make the the incidents very, very extreme, you know, whatever is happening around them. As far as my own kids are concerned, no, they they perceive me as having always been this age. Uh, I think, <laughs> you, you know, they, uh, they asked me about, you know, what it was like when I played football when I was young or, or, and stuff like that. It's all part of the, the mythology, the storytelling of family. And it just so happened that, you know, I had uh, Chris and I had our children later in life and I told them I, I'm a better dad for it. I was unbearable when I was young. They say, well, you're unbearable now. So they accept it for what it is. I, 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 the hardest thing has been for them to realise that, you know, I won't see many of their successes, uh, you know, and, and that's difficult, I think, for them. Um, when I was writing Pilgrim, uh, I went down to Australia, went back to Australia with Kristen, and uh, we had three of the children at that stage. and. Um, uh, we went down because my parents were, were, were very elderly and that. And uh, so I was writing Pilgrim and uh, I only had one brother and he was three years older than me and uh, he died. Then uh, my dad died. I had the unpleasant job of asking the doctors to, you know, there was nothing more we could do. Mm-hmm. And then my mum died. So it was all within a year. Gosh. And I, I can see the point in Pilgrim when I was dealing with that. I, mm-hmm. I, I know where that happened. And I, 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 well, maybe not, I feel like I can see it in the prose. Kids, you know, kids complain about it. I'm a parent, every parent knows this. You guys know this. Your kids complain about you all the time. They say, all the time. Just, oh, yeah. 
Nothing yeah. you do is ever yeah. right. So, yeah. so you just remember one thing. You just remember, I'm an orphan and you should cut me some slack. And that they look at me and say, oh, for God, like, <laughs> that's nothing. And that, so, no, it, it, um, yeah, of course, you know, the things that the thing that always breaks my heart, and we see this regularly in Australia, is the father that goes into the surf to save his two struggling children, gets them to shore and dies himself. Mm. And, you know, and I thought about that a lot when I was doing that plot threat, you know, and, and that. And how far do you go for your kids? You'll go a lot farther than you ever thought will for your country. Mm-hmm. You know, Gore Vidal said it. Said all great drama happens within families, and now if you're talking about when you're writing these type of books, you're looking for something that's worth defending. And uh, I decided that this would be different to Pilgrim. He'd have something really worth defending, and uh, and he does. So thank you, all, Terry. We should all be that lucky. Thank you. <laughs> 